Well, welcome, folks. Uh, my name is Bruce Dingle. I'm one of the ministry staff here. Good to have you along if you're visiting with us. How about I pray and then we'll look at that passage or at least part of that last passage together. Father, help us, please, with the Bible, not just to understand it, but we want you to get your spirit to apply it to our hearts and our lives, to refresh our souls, to challenge us, to get us ready for the things that you have in store for us. Amen. One of the things that we've learnt from this whole bushfire crisis is that you need to have your bushfire plan in place. You've seen the ads on TV and you've heard people talk about it. You cannot wait till the emergency hits before you work out what you're going to do. That's what the Rural Fire Service is telling us. That's what all sorts of people are telling us. Because if you wait till a crisis hits, it's too late and you can't make wise decisions at the heat of the moment. Well, the passage that we're looking at today, and we're just going to look at two or three verses, deals with how do you cope with the troubles in life. But like your bushfire plan, folks, you need to have this worked out beforehand. One of the hardest things in my job is to sit with someone who's whose world's come down around them. Maybe they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Maybe a loved one has died. And to know just what to say to them in that moment. It's much easier if we've got this advice from the Bible into place before crises hit. And you'll see why as we go on. We're looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, the next in our series. And look how it starts. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Notice, firstly, that God works in everything for the good of those who love him. See that there? It's even more obvious in the original language because the original wording goes like this. To the ones loving God, everything works together for good. So God does not work everything together for good for everyone's good. It's conditional. See that there? The promise is for those who love God, God promises to work all things together for their good. Paul was always very careful with his wording. He says, notice that God works for the good of those who love him, but God works in all things. Do you notice that there's that God? And we know that in all things. He doesn't promise to stop our problems. He doesn't promise to stop the pain or the grief or life's hassles. Paul says he works in those things. Do you notice that? He works in those things, not despite those things. Someone from my, uh, my early years, uh, a lady called Johnny Erickson Tata, became a quadriplegic after diving into shallow water as a teenager. And in her book, she's written a number of books, she explains why God did not answer her prayers for healing. She was convinced that God would if she had enough faith. And she and her friends prayed, but God did not heal her. What did happen was that her injury brought her to God and has made her a beacon of hope for all who suffer. She's turned her disability into a fantastic ministry called Johnny and Friends. And this is what she says... Sometimes, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes, God allows what he hates 
to accomplish what he loves. Now, let's look at how Paul describes those who love God. They are called according to his purpose, it says. And again, notice the wording. I've got this little laser pointer here. I hope it'll work. See, for those who... I can't get it to work now. Oh, I know what's wrong. There we go. For those who've been called according to his purpose, notice there is no and there. God works for the good of those who love him, not and who have been called according to his purpose, but those who love him are those who've been called according to his purpose. The original wording again, the original wording order makes this pretty obvious. When you become a Christian, it's not a fluke. It's not just good luck. It's not because you had Christian family or upbringing. You are called according to God's plan. You love God because you've been called according to God's plan. And then Paul goes on to unpack what this means. I hope you've got your thinking caps on tonight. He starts off with the word for. Okay, So we know God works all things together for those who love him, and that means those who have been called according to his plan. For, because... Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We now step into a minefield, don't we? Predestination. Uh, If you are new to church things, you may not know that this is an issue that, that sort of divides the Christian church. There are two main views here. There's what I want to call classical predestination or what some will call Calvinism after John Calvin. Uh, And that's the view that God makes us Christians. That he chooses us and he gives us faith to then choose him. In this view, our salvation is all from God. God does everything. He predestines us to choose him. The other view, called Arminianism, focuses on our free will. I think we've got a couple of slides there, Jared. Uh, What happens in this view is that God looks into the future and he sees who will choose him. And so before all that happens, he chooses them. And they rely, uh, these people rely on that part of the passage that says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. See that? So they go, okay. See, God knew we would choose him and therefore he predestines us. And so, in this view, uh, God, knowing who will accept him, accepts them first. And Arminians will say that is what predestination means here. I need to confess, at this point, I'm what you call a Calvinist. (laughs) My problem with Arminianism is that if God chooses us because we will choose him, then he's not making anything happen, is he? We are. We save ourselves. He is just recognising that we are making it happen. He is not predestining anything. And if Paul didn't mean predestined, why use the word? And you see, predestination does not mean that we don't have a choice in the matter. Please hear that clearly. It's not a case of you either believe in free will or you believe in predestination. I think the Bible teaches it's possible to believe in both those things. I'd be happy to explain that to you further, but I don't want to... Spend a whole lot of time on it now. So what about that word foreknew? Those whom God foreknew, 
he also predestined. Well, when the Bible uses knowing someone, it means more than, oh, yes, I know who you are. Uh, The Bible talks about um, Abraham knew his wife and she conceived. Well, that's more than, oh, yes, I know who you are. You're Sarah, you're my wife. Now, the word means sort of uh, intimate knowledge, intimate relationship. And so in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 20, Peter talks about Jesus and he says, there's a slide, he, Jesus, was destined, and the word in the original language was foreknown, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of times for your sake. The word destined, translated destined here, uh, is actually the word foreknown. And you can't say this passage means that God looked into the future, saw that Jesus would take on human flesh, and therefore God predestined it to happen. It's a bit of a nonsense, isn't it? And so the translators rightly use the word foreknow um, to be destined, to be destined. You know, when you finally die, Jesus is not going to ask you whether you are an Arminian or a Calvinist. When you get to the gates of heaven, and if there's someone there, who knows, you know, checking your pass, they're not going to say, are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminian? The issue need not divide us as God's people. There are many fine Christian Bible teachers on both sides of this debate, if you like. Two of the greatest heroes of mine of all time. Um, um, (laughs) It's a terrible one. You should have written it down. Um, John Wesley was an Arminian. And George Whitfield who was around the same time, they were contemporaries, both incredible evangelists, both responsible for thousands of people being converted. John Whitfield was a, was a Calvinist. And those two disagreed strongly. And yet God used them both. So I'm going to leave it there and see if it doesn't become clearer as we move on. So look at what the end result of God's plan is. Let's get back to the passage. He predestines us. He plans that we be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's plan for you. If you are a believer, you be conformed to the image of Jesus. One day, when Jesus comes back, you will be seen, not for who you were in this life, with all your weaknesses and all your foibles and all your failures. You'll not be seen like that. When Jesus returns, you will be seen for the man that God made you to be. For the woman that God made you to be. You will be perfected. You'll be full of grace and love and honesty and purity. Because God will remake you after the image of his son. And we will reign with Jesus. We will be his brothers and sisters. And Paul is making the point, God will do that. God will do it. The very fact that you have accepted Jesus Christ, your Saviour and Lord, you repented and believed, is because God has done it. And he's going to carry it on right until the very end of this process. And then Paul goes on. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So here's the process so far. Okay, switch on again. God foreknows us. That is, he sets his love upon you and me. And then he predestines us. He makes sure that our rescue and adoption happens so that one day we will be remade in the image of Jesus. And then he calls us. 
And that's when we get to respond in faith. That's where repentance and faith comes in. God calls us and we respond. In the Bible, going to get a bit complicated here, there are two calls from God. There are two calls from God. The first uh, is often translated in the Bible as an invitation rather than a call, but the same word is used. In theology, it's called a general call. So in Acts 17.30, we're told, God calls on everyone to repent. There it is. God commands all people everywhere to repent. The word is call. It's the same word. But we know that not everyone does repent. We know that people refuse. And that is why Jesus can say, for many are invited, and the original word there is called, but few are chosen. The second call from God is what is known as the effectual call. This is a call which accomplishes what it calls. And we know that that's what's going on here because Paul follows it up. Those whom God calls, he also justifies and glorifies. Well, not everybody that he invites does he justify and glorify. He doesn't save everybody he invites, but he saves everybody who he calls. Same word. So there are two different sorts of calls. And folks, we use the word call in the same way. Those two different ways. It's like the difference between putting out, you know, in these bushfires, we put out a call for volunteers. That means we invite people to come and volunteer. But our Prime Minister has called out the reserves. And that's not an invitation. They have to answer the call or else. We use the same word. And, and the Bible uses the word call in those two different ways. God calls everyone to be saved, but some he calls effectively. And here, in this passage, God calls his chosen ones in faith, to faith into Christ Jesus. Those he called, he also justified. That word justified, it means that were I to face God, and just imagine he was to ask me to justify my behaviour and the way that I'd lived if he was to say, I want you to justify your failure to love your neighbour as yourself, I want you to justify your failure to treat me the way you should have done, that is, justify your sin, I'd be able to point to Jesus' death on the cross in my place and say, he justified my sin when he died in my place on the cross. When he took my punishment for my failures, he justified me. That is justification. God calls and God justifies. He declares you're not guilty because of Jesus' death on the cross. And lastly, it says that God glorifies us. Those he justified, he also glorified. <clears throat> Very interesting because our glorification is not going to take place until Jesus returns. And yet here he uses it in the past tense. See that? Those he justified, he also glorified. We're not glorified yet. You and I aren't the people God made us to be yet. We're not pure and holy and acceptable. We're acceptable, not pure and holy. We're not remade yet. How come he uses the past tense? It's because he's so sure it's going to happen, because God's doing it, that he can talk about it as though it has happened. And so I want you to see the train of thought here, folks. Christians are suffering when Paul writes this. And Punchy talked about that last week. And Christians are suffering today. We're not um, exempt from the problems of this world. 
We're not exempt from death and illness and grief and relationship problems. We're not exempt from any of it. Christians are suffering and we have questions about how could a loving God let this happen? You may have asked that question yourself. And so Paul tells these Christians who are asking those questions that there will be trouble. Punchy talked about it last week. But one day, they'll all be behind us as God's people. There is an incredible glory waiting for us that'll make our present troubles look like a bad dream. And even in the middle of all these troubles, this is the amazing thing. God will work in them to bring about your good. How do we know? How can we be sure that in the midst of this terrible situation that I'm in, this pain and this grief, you know, that I just want to give up on life, it is so bad, how can, how can I know that, that God is working that out for my good? Because I can't see it. We know because God is in charge of the whole process. From foreknowing us, setting his love upon us before the creation of the world, to predestining in us, to be conformed to the image of his son, to calling us into his family, to justifying us and then glorifying us. See, you don't have to worry. If, if you have repented and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry, oh, do I love God enough for him to accept me? No, no, God has called you. God has predestined you. God has chosen you. God has glorified you. God has justified you. It's all of him. And so you don't have to worry about whether you're going to be good enough or whether you love him enough. Because those who love God, remember at the beginning, have been according, called according to his purposes. You would not love God if you weren't called. God works in all things for our good. And there's a couple of great examples of that in the Bible, isn't there? There's Paul's own life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about this thing he calls the thorn in the flesh. He doesn't unpack what that is, but he says, I prayed to God three times earnestly for him to take away this thorn in my flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan. Okay, strong word, isn't it? This thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, this thing in my body that's causing me so much grief, it is a messenger from Satan. And yet, Paul says, God uses it, a messenger from Satan, to make him stronger. He says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See that, this messenger of Satan, God uses even this messenger of Satan to bring about good in Paul's life. The first reading we had from uh, the book of uh, Genesis about Joseph, you may or may not know the story of Joseph, but his brothers hated him so much, they sell him as a slave. And uh, he's, he's wrongly imprisoned for a trumped-up charge of rape. He's in jail for all these years. And finally, by a series of events, he becomes second in charge of the whole of Egypt. And he meets up with his brothers again. And they are terrified. 
Because here is Joseph, their brother, who they sold as a slave, and now he has the power over them as a second in charge of Egypt. And what does Joseph say? He said, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. He sent me ahead of you to prepare the way because there had been this terrible drought and Egypt had food. And Joseph was able to save his whole tribe. You meant it for evil, but God used it for good. This is a messenger from Satan, says Paul, but God uses it for good. God works in all things, all things, for the good of those he calls into his family. Who knows how God will use your grief or your disabilities or your illness or even your death? Who knows how God will use those for good, for your good? But he will. And you'll be able to look back in the future and you'll be able to say, I can see how God used that for good. But folks, we need to get this as our way of thinking before these problems strike. Because when I'm in grief, when I'm in extremis, when I am really suffering, the last thing I want is for you to say to me, oh, all things work out together for good for those who love God. I don't want to hear that. I'm not ready to hear that then. I need to have it as part of my life and my thinking and the way that I relate to God and my worldview now, why things are good so that when those times come, it'll be part of my thinking that God, in my extreme pain, in my problems, will work things out for my good. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. By the way, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that can change. The very fact that you're here in church, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, means that God's working in your life. You wouldn't be here otherwise. And what you need to do is you need to respond to his call to you, because he puts faith in your heart. And he puts it there so that you will respond to him in faith. See this whole issue of free will. You don't have free will without God. The Bible says you're a slave to your passions. You're a slave to sin. You can't make a free choice. It's only when God works on you and frees your heart that you're actually, actually able to go, I now can make a free choice. And nobody in their right mind, given a free choice, would refuse to accept God's offer of forgiveness. There is only real freedom when you're remade and set free from sin. So I just want to encourage you today, folks. Make it part of your thinking. Uh, read stories that tell you how terrible things work out for good. Uh, there was a bloke called uh, Jim Elliott back in the 50s who went with two friends into Ecuador to a tribe that had never been reached before with the gospel. And he and his two friends were, uh, were killed by this tribe shot with arrows until they died. And you want to go, where is the good in that? And yet 20 years later, his wife goes back there and people are converted and people come to the Lord Jesus Christ and those people will be in heaven shaking the hand of the man they killed because they are now with God forever. God works together in all things for the good of those who love him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this mighty promise. And thank you that it's not in our hands to stay faithful to you. 
We thank you, Father, that you call and you justify and you glorify, that you are in total charge and that we can rely upon you in the midst of all the difficulties and dreadful things of this life, knowing that you will work them together for our good. Help us to trust that promise when things get black. Amen.